Hello, welcome to the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell. You may have noticed that we've had a bit of a hiatus from new episodes over the past few weeks. I've been dealing with some family medical issues and that's made getting the podcast out a little more difficult. However, we've got some new content coming and hopefully you'll find it worthwhile. This week, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Mariana Guerra Malpome to the podcast. Mariana is a veterinarian with PhD training in bovine respiratory disease, whose primary job involves working as a feedlot veterinary consultant with TELUS Agriculture and Consumer Goods in Okotoks, Alberta. She consults at feedlots in Canada, the US, and Mexico, and even further abroad. And today we're talking about the challenges associated with devising health protocols to help calves with that transition from the cow-calf operation to the backgrounder, stalker sector, and to the feedlot. Let's get started. Hi, Mariana. Thanks for being here and welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. And maybe before we start on our topic for today, I'll just get you to tell the audience a little bit about your background. Yes, of course, John. Thanks for having me. I have a bit of an unconventional background. I was raised in uh, Mexico City. That's where I obtained my DVM uh, from uh, Mexico City's vet school. It was my uh, interest to continue my professional growth that took me to pursue a doctorate degree at Kansas State University in the U.S. I studied um, uh, bovine respiratory disease, and it was through that uh, exposure to the cattle industry that I decided that I want to dedicate my professional career to uh, to cattle. Through networking with uh, other grad students, I was offered a position, uh, my current position here uh, in Canada, and I've been working with uh, TELUS Agriculture and Consumer Goods for five years. So I, I dedicate my, now my life to cattle. That's great. And it's a great example of how we can't predict what students are going to do when they're in vet school. It's, it's a really good lesson. And you don't have to be a farm kid to be a good uh, large animal veterinarian, I think, uh, that's a really good message. Can you tell us a little bit more about what kind of work you currently do at TELUS Agriculture and Consumer Goods? It's formerly it was called Feedlot Health Management Services, which maybe people can understand a bit more. But uh, tell us tell us a little bit about that job. Right. So Feedlot Health was founded about over forty years ago by Dr. Kia Jim, and it was acquired by TELUS Agriculture short of four years now. So I act as a professional services veterinarian here uh, with the team. So there's a um, large group of individuals from nutritionists, animal scientists, support staff, veterinarians. And what we do is provide consulting services to primarily the feedlot industry in North America. I am based out of the Okotox office here in Alberta, but I provide services to feedlots in um, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, and I'm part of the uh, animal health team. So anything that has to do with uh, designing uh, induction protocols, treatment protocols, uh, research, and helping and collaborating with other members of the nutritional uh, nutrition team, a marketing team, procurement team, and, and others. So basically, we're a consulting services, uh, service-based company for feedlots. Right. And I should add that one of the things you folks do on the side is put on a fantastic 
student externship program that we take part of, as well as a number of other veterinary colleges. And we get to take students out there every fall and and learn more about the feedlot industry. And uh, we really appreciate that. So every year, every year we have three groups about from 12 to 14 students of all over North America and now also some from Australia and Mexico. And that's what one of the things that we look forward to every every fall. Yeah, it's a great program for the students and they learn a lot. And, and it's usually the students that are very interested in food animal medicine and food animal production medicine that, that we take out to that. So it's a, it's a great opportunity for them. Well, today we want to talk about uh, something you spoke at at the recent Western Canadian Bovine Practitioners Meeting in Calgary just a few weeks ago. It's something unique to the beef industry. We have this very segmented industry with a cow-calf sector and some intermediate sectors and and then the feedlot sector, and that creates some major health challenges. So let's start by having you describe those different segments of our industry, and let's maybe we'll emphasize the intermediate phases, the background and stalker industries to start with, just so that all the listeners are up to speed. I expect most of them understand those issues, but let's let's make sure we make it clear what we're talking about. Sounds good. So if you let's follow a traditional path of the industry and i'm gonna omit the uh, dairy industry i'm not gonna add the, that other segment which only complicates things a bit more so if you think about a flow chart we would have the seed stock on top which are going to provide the quality genetics to the next segment or the you know attached segment which would be the commercial cow calf then in between the, the cow-calf and the feedlot, we're going to have the backgrounding phase. Uh, and then after the feedlot, those calves uh, are going to go to the slaughter to the packer and then reach the consumer. That would be the end goal for the um, supply chain. If we um, concentrate in that intermediate phase, which, you know, it's not well defined. Some define it as stalkers. Most commonly that term is used in the South or backgrounders. After a calf is weaned, it uh, comes out of the cow-calf and it can follow basically three different pathways to get into a feedlot. It could go straight from a cow-calf into the feedlot, could go into a grazing system and then place into a feedlot, could go from cow-calf to a dry lot and then place in the feedlot, or it can go in a combination of grazing, short period of time in a dry lot and then um, to the feedlot. The main difference of this sector is going to be trying to get those calves uh, get, gain weight at a low cost of gain, uh, improve health so that when they are placed in the feedlot, they perform much better. So I think that here the, the takeaway is that the backgrounders or their stalkers can function as a, a segment where they can integrate both the top with the cow-calf and the bottom, which would be the feedlot. So in your job, you're primarily working in the feedlot sector. And what are some of the factors that determine the relative value of those feeder calves that are entering that sector? What, what practices do feedlot owners think are valuable in terms of preventing disease issues? So we're going to start, couldn't talk to a feedlot consultant without speaking of data. So we're going to go into heavy data, database information. So there's there's two ways to look at this. The first would be what are the uh, online auctions and most of the information that we know is taken from the superior 
superior livestock auction, but also Beef Research Canada has published different standards. And it's not surprising that both of those premiums match between Canada and the U.S. There's going to be certain differences. So things like breed are going to be important for obtaining premiums. So exotic breeds like the Brahman or long-eared cattle usually get discounts. Management practices such as the horning calves get premiums uh, or even pool genetics as well. Steers get premiums over uh, heifers. Steers get premiums over bulls. Non-pregnant heifers get premiums. Uh, Flesh core is important. So usually calves that are uh, light to medium flesh core, they don't like to see fleshy calves because the objective of the feedlot is going to be to put on that weight, right? It's not the objective of the cow-calf or the backgrounding to put those, that flesh Frame is important. Usually the feedlot, the cattle buyers are looking for calves that have medium or large frames, the ability of those calves to be able to put weight for the finishing stage. Important for our cow-calf producers is going to be the weight variation. So usually lots that are, their weight variation is higher than 100 pounds are going to have premiums. So we've seen premiums as much as uh, 1 to 2.3 per hundred weight in lots that are uniform, as well as sizes. So they, if you think about how many calves take to um, occupy a 300 head pen, they want to have the least amount of sources as possible. So lot size matters. Usually uh, lots that are marketed about 100 calves get premiums over the ones that are much smaller. I've seen a lot of producers, or not a lot, but it, there's been some strategies out there that producers, if they don't have, if you think about the average cow herd size, not everybody's going to be able to produce 100 calves. But I've seen some producers that standardize their management practices, their breeds, their calving window, and then they market a group of calves together and they obtain a premium that way. The auction date, the location here in Canada, we see calves that get a premium for those that are based closer to the packing plan. So usually calves that are marketed in Alberta get higher premiums than other places. So the area of origin matters. Age and source verification used to matter, but since Japan dropped the age requirement, that we have not seen that. I think an important difference that it's between the U.S. and Canada is going to be the verified health programs. In Canada, we haven't seen that come through in uh, in money. So uh, in the U.S., those calves that are managed 45 days, shipped 45 days after weaning, deworming, different vaccine protocols get premiums. We have not, unfortunately, seen, seen that in Canada. And so I think that's that's an area of, of opportunity in the future, not only for producers, but for veterinarians as, as well. And then if we think about the other side of the equation would be what type of management practices do feedlot operators consider important Uh, at reducing risk, right? What can we do in a cow-calf operation or in a backgrounding operation to increase the value of our calves? How how do those operators see value in the calves? So there was a survey uh, in 2012 that the USDA published and they asked pilot operators, what pre-arrival management practices do you care the most? So on top of their mind was 90% 90 of them said, we want those calves castrated for weeks or the horn four weeks prior to arrival to the feedlot. The second most important was we want those calves vaccinated two weeks prior to weaning. 
The third most important was we want those calves to be able to eat out of the bunk immediately, so ready to perform. We don't want them to stay behind, so they, it can take up to two weeks, right, of those calves that are unfamiliar of, um, if they're eating out of the bunk. Other practices were vaccinating two weeks uh, after weaning, and, and the warming was also important. Not as important as the others, but it was also on the top of the, top of the list for them. Right, and as you said, you know, the big challenge is can you get a premium for that? And that's been shown in the U.S., but maybe not as much in Canada so far. Well, we're really talking about respiratory disease when we talk about the health challenges. That's the main one we have when those calves are transitioning between sectors. How big an issue is that and what are the impacts? Yeah, so we wouldn't be talking about cattle health without mentioning BRD. So BRD continues to be the primary cause of death since the backgrounding or the stalker segment is not well defined, it's hard to get an estimate of the economic impact on that segment. But if we generalize and say how much BRD affects the beef industry, there's been some estimates out there that have not been updated. So in 2010, there was an estimate that said BRD costs the beef industry $1 billion a year. And that's including indirect and indirect costs, which we will describe later. So BRD usually presents on the first 27 days on feed, and that's going to be important because that's going to dictate what strategies we can use to be either or not successful and what can we do before the calves get to the feedlot. Speaking of mortality and morbidity, so what can we expect those calves to do once they're in the backgrounding phase? So it really depends on where they're coming from. So if you see, if you have a calf that comes straight from a cow calf or even the cow calf that keeps their calves from uh, for backgrounding, the really the mortality and the morbidity are going to be low, as low as one percent mortality and less than five percent pull rate. But for those, and, and this is when it becomes more important for those that are buying calves out of the auction mart, we can see pull rates as high as fifty percent and then mortality as high as ten percent. So it really doesn't take much. It doesn't take too many fall-behind calves to lose the profitability of the backgrounding operation. As a feedlot veterinarian, one of the first things you do when you're looking at designing a health protocol is determining the risk level of the calves. And when we talk about risk level, we're talking about how likely are they to get respiratory disease or what kind of morbidity, mortality rates are we going to have. So what are some of the strategies that the cow-calf sector can implement that might lower the risk of BRD uh, when they come into the next sector of the industry? So it is really important to think even before the calf is born. So how are they going to manage those cows? So cow vaccination is extremely important because that's going to determine the quality of the colostrum. So I we, we like to think that the answer is at the end of the needle when, in my opinion, and the research that I've, we've done and the research that I've seen, the tra- trajectory of a calf is going to be determined on day one, right? So I've been really interested. We haven't really paid much attention on colostrum intake in the beef industry as much as we have in the dairy industry. But what type of practices 
are we doing with those calves? If we, when we're tagging those calves, when we're vaccinating those calves, if we're intervening in those first six hours after birth that the calf is supposed to be uh, drinking colostrum out of that cow. And also, I think it's important to think about the, the genetics and the quality of the cows. If really they're producing high quality colostrum, and if they're if we're selecting for tame cows, is that impacting the, their ability to take care of those calves and nurse those calves and specifically in those six hours? I think it's extremely important. So genetic selection, uh, vaccination protocols, management of that calf, that cow, and then consequently that calf, vaccinating that calf is going to be important to what type of vaccines we select, the uh, timing of those vaccines, and then, of course, working with your veterinarian to design the, the, according to their specific disease challenges, their, their treatment and their health, health, health protocols are going to be extremely important, not without mentioning nutri nutrition management, low stress handling are going to be extremely important for that calf. I should just but in here that many of those factors are going to decrease the risk level of those calves all the way through the uh, cow-calf sector as well, right? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, they have huge benefits to reduce morbidity in the pre-weaned calf as well as mortality in the pre-weaned calf. We did an episode uh, last year with Dr. Claire Windier from University of Calgary on colostrum specifically. And and uh, just encourage people to go back and listen to that one if if they want to hear how that actually provides benefits at the cow-calf level as well as the feedlot level, uh, as you're talking about. Was there anything else there, Mariana? I cut you off, but uh, just want to make sure. Not, I think, it, you know, as you mentioned, it's that's going to be on the first stage. Like the well-managed cow herd is going to influence the, the performance of that calf down the line. There's things that we can't necessarily control and you talked about some of the risks of uh, developing BRD so some of the, the things that we not necessarily are going to be able to control but we have to take into account would be the inherent animal risks so distance travel the, the time after weaning uh, all the stressors whether if they're commingled between other sources even you know nutrition is important if we're coming out of a drought that influences the performance of that calf in the cow-calf and in the feedlot, gender and reproductive status. So pregnant heifers, bulls are going to perform terribly compared to steers, season, of course. And then what type of uh, facilities do you have are going to influence how well you can take care of those calves and as well as the staff that you have, the training and the, the amount or the quantity of people available to um, take care of those calves. So what do we know right now about how often cow-calf producers utilize some of these strategies to, to prevent respiratory disease down the, down the road? Yeah, so there's, again, data. We, we don't like to guess anything. There's, there's data published out there. And it, so the cow-calf surveillance uh, network published in 2021 gives us a good idea, although a small subset of the population. So I would encourage all the producers and veterinarians listening to this episode to participate in those surveys because they gives us an idea of the areas of opportunity for both the feedlot, in, well, the feedlot industry, all the segments of cow-calf backgrounding and feedlot industry. So from that survey, it was really interesting to see that uh, the percentage of producers that are vaccinating, it's increasing, right? It was scary. Like 10 years ago, it was scary. 
And once you bought or received those calves in the fetal, you could basically assume that none of those calves were vaccinated, right? There's some estimates out there that 60% of those calves never received the vaccine. It's completely scary. So that those uh, numbers have increased, and we know because these surveys are conducted and gives us an idea of how where, where is the industry moving? So I don't know if you remember exactly, John, but I think it's maybe 90%, 95% of the producers are giving a viral vaccine. Yeah, pretty close to that. Yep. And that's going to be a modified live vaccine. So we know from research that that works better than a kill vaccine. So that's great. The other thing that I thought it was interesting from that uh, survey was the amount of producers that are boosting that viral first viral vaccine. So I think this is an area of opportunity for the cow-calf where uh, if those subset of, uh, I would say, progressive producers are only 47% of those are vaccinating, are boosting that vaccine, I think that's an area of opportunity. We can extrapolate and say there's, you know, a need for increasing the that uh, practice, right? Most more, more calves should get boost according to label, so two to four weeks after the first uh, vaccine, if possible, right? Not everybody can manage or has the time, especially if they're farming, to rehandle those calves again. But I think that if possible, that's a good opportunity. As you mentioned before, that it's going to re- give uh, the return in their investment on their herd, but as well in, in the you know bottom on the bottom sector, which would be the backgrounding or the or the feedlot. So the big question is always, how do cow-calf producers capture the value of implementing some of these strategies? Obviously, some of them help them at the cow-calf sector as well, uh, but some of them maybe provide more benefit to the feedlot. Is it possible for them to capture the value of these animals being healthier in the feedlot? So the the biggest driver of the economic gain to the producer is going to be improved performance so for specifically for the background there it's going to be improved performance so increased dollars on, head, on per head on sale day so if we think about the goal would be uh, average daily gain of 1.5 to 2 pounds per day at a low cost of gain not everybody can put gain at low cost so that's this is going to be a niche for specific individuals not everybody's going to be able to obtain that value because it's determined but uh there's gonna have to be forage availability yeah skill like labor and other many location and other many different things but i think that at the end of the day if a producer can see more pounds on sale day it's you know that's that's the biggest driver and that takes a healthy healthy calf so we can influence genetics like as consultants or as producers how can we improve our genetics to have heavier calves larger frames how can we you know i don't think we're using enough implants so implant use is going to be important so strategies that will maximize what we're putting on those calves so implants are probably the highest return for those producers the use of ionophores the warming, if necessary, and of course, of course, as, as we've been chatting, uh, maximizing the immune status uh, through well thought uh, protocols based on on research. I think that if you know feedlot producers, not everybody, but we've seen feedlots that cattle buyers that go back to the same cow calf or the same background there, so the reputation builds. If those calves perform, uh, are predictable. Not everybody wants to manage high-risk calves. I would say the least 
uh, a really small amount of our beef industry is going to be willing or able to manage high-risk calves. For, for those that are not set up or not wanting to take that risk, then they're going to see value on well-managed calves from, from you know, this, this practices. Exactly. The other thing we should mention maybe is that you can always capture the value by retaining ownership through the Absolutely. feedback. And that may be an important strategy as well. If your cattle are going to perform well and be healthy, why shouldn't you participate in their profitability in the feedlot? Yeah. And in a good note, I would say that last year and this year, cattle prices probably encourage uh, backgrounding. So keeping those calves heavier and selling those calves. In other years, you might want to keep those calves. So marketing is important. Cattle prices. Well, we're going to keep on the data theme for a minute and because that's important uh, certainly to all the feedlot veterinarians out there, but it's important for producers as well. And what information is important for producers to collect if they're going to consider some sort of backgrounding or preconditioning program for their cattle? Yeah, so that's some area that's exciting to me. We've seen a generational change. So there's been an increased interest in collecting data from producers all over the different sectors. So it doesn't matter how they're collecting data, to me anyways, it doesn't matter if you're using a fancy software or a paper or Excel sheet. The most important thing is that you keep records and you can find them when you need them. So it really takes individual record uh, keeping to make it change. So some of the things that I, I suggest producers to record would be gain. So uh, average daily gain, and that takes uh, in weight, out weight, so shipping weight. It is important to know the dry matter intake, uh, to, to know your cost of gain. And it's important for us veterinarians and the, you know, the, the profit loss of the operation to have an idea of the number of calves that were treated, number of calves that uh, died, and that will give you a good, a good idea of how profitable you can be. That is a huge part of your job as a feedlot veterinarian. Can you just describe how important that is when you folks make decisions about animal health or production uh, at the feedlot level? Right. So um, effective and consistent management of calves results from developing the discipline to measure, collect, and evaluate the information to make management changes and improve the health of the calves. We don't, we take out the guesswork from our protocols and our uh, treatment, induction and treatment protocols. We've seen that arbitrarily and frequently changing vaccines, antibiotics to improve or control the uh, BRD in any operation rather than measuring the results with established protocols really uh, and making changes based on, on evidence and data analysis. It's an approach that frequently leads to inconsistent control of BRD and the return in the investment. So the ability of, to manage high-risk calves comes from efficiently uh, managing, collecting and evaluating the, the information collected those variables that we discussed. Well, we've been talking about these animal health issues between sectors in the beef industry for many years, for all of my career, for sure. <laughs> and sometimes it seems those things are pretty slow to change. There was preconditioning back when I was a new veterinarian, and and now it seems it's less common than, than before, at least those prescribed programs. I know it's impossible to predict the future, but how do you think things might change over the next 20 years? And what might be some of the drivers of that change? Again, I would go back to data, 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 data. If I were to, if I were to summarize 
what I've seen in the industry in the last five years, uh, there's a hunger for information and there's an information gap, right? You have the cow-calf producer guessing what the background there wants, and then we have the background there guessing what the feedlot wants, and then you have the feedlot guessing what the background there did and the cow-calf did. So I think there's going to be a huge, and again, speaking of the genera generational change, we've seen these younger producers uh, wanting to see data, wanting to see results, we don't hear that often. This is the way we've done things in the past. They're willing to do make changes because those things don't necessarily have worked. So they want to see an improvement. And I believe that the use of data, it's going to be what's going to drive that change in the industry in the next, I wouldn't even go 20 years, John. I would hope that in the next 10, uh, five years, that's going to be a, that's going to be a big you know, jump from what we used to do. Yeah, that'd be great to see, and and certainly companies like yours that tell us they are they are right in the midst of that with uh, some of their cow calf work as well. So uh, it's very interesting. So maybe to summarize, let's say we have a cow calf producer who wants to retain ownership of his or her calves into the feedlot. Uh, so they want to make sure that those calves are as healthy as possible and are as profitable as possible because they're going to. Uh, participate in that profit at some level, what would you recommend them to do? I would say those producers are going to be one step ahead because they're going to take advantage of their own genetics and their own management. So I would expect those, if they were, if they were well managed, I would expect those calves to perform much better than a calf that did not receive proper um, design of health protocols, induction protocols, but you know, vaccination, nutrition. So I would encourage them to uh, keep those calves. I think there's a reduced risk or there's a reduced risk if they retain ownership. So if they start from they before they conceive that calf, they're going to see return in their investment if they can find a way to retain, retain ownership until, you know, uh, slaughter. We talked about vaccinating the cow, the selection of genetics. You know, we talked about where's the value. So how can they use their genetics to increase premiums? How can they increase uh, health by well-designed, well-thought, research-based uh, data uh, evidenced uh, protocols? working with their nutritionist, where they're, they're veterinarian. Um, and I think those calves are going to be, we're going to perform really well, are going to grade really well. We're not going to have issues where, with BRD and um, luckily and on sale there, they're going to see that cash coming back to them. Well, that's great advice, Mariana. Thank you for being here today. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you you folks are very busy there at TELUS Agriculture, and, and we certainly appreciate having you here on the podcast today. So yeah. Thanks again. The, the beauty of this is that we can do it from anywhere. That's right. So it's awesome. So <laughs> thanks thanks again. Take care. That's our show for this week. I want to thank each of you for listening to the podcast. And thanks again to my guest, Dr. Mariana Aguera Mapone. Thank you as well to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions or comments or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email me at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care until next time.